Hello and welcome to the Digital Insights Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Australian Government's digital profession, keeping the Australian public service digital ready. I'm Fleur Anderson and I'm your host. Today, I acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the land. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that request to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening. Today we'll be talking to our expert panel about the future of work. We'll explore ongoing and future changes for the work of the public service, effective workplace and leadership culture, and best practice for delivering outcomes. Let's meet our panel. In true working from home style we have in New Zealand, uh, Pia Andrews, uh, an Australian who is a special advisor to the Canadian government and she's leading the digital and client data work stream for Employment and Social Development Canada. In 2018, Pia was listed as one of the world's 20 most influential people in digital government and in 2014, recognised for innovation and named one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence. Hello, Pia. Hello, thank you so much for having me today. Thanks. And in Melbourne, we have Vanessa Doak, Chief People Officer of Art Processes, an amazing creative technology company which works with some of our most beloved public institutions here and around the world. Before joining Art Processes, Vanessa co-founded Code Like a Girl, that wonderful groundbreaking social enterprise that aims to attract and retain girls from all walks of life in STEM education and technology careers. Hello, Vanessa. Hello, great to be here. And now this is going to be interesting. We have another Vanessa as well here in Canberra, Vanessa Rorty. She leads the digital profession branch for the Australian Public Service Commission. Vanessa has spent the last 20 years building up digital capability and digital services of state and federal governments. She's worked on some of the biggest digital initiatives in government, including Digital Identity, MyGov and GovCMS. Hello, Vanessa. Hello, everyone. Great to be here today. So I know, Pia, you are really passionate about citizen-centric design and the pragmatic, actual, real-life innovation in the public sector and beyond. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to discover that this is your passion? That's an interesting question. The, so I started, um, I've been working, I guess, in the tech sector. Uh, I started about 22 or so years ago. And I, I enjoyed it very much, but um, always felt something was a little bit missing. I uh, got poached to go work in a, a political office, even though I um, really dislike politics, but it was a good chance to learn how the system works, how democracy works. I do believe politics gets in the way of democracy sometimes, but it was a fabulous experience. <clears throat> and while I was there, I went back to finish actually uh, my university studies in um, public policy and, uh, and history. And that's when I started really learning about and understanding the role of the public service and the role of the public service in a, uh, a modern uh, society as a, a, when it works well, a genuine platform, social, economic, cultural platform upon which people and communities can thrive. So I developed my passion for public service about 10 years ago and, uh, and have committed my life ever since to uh, trying to ensure that public services live up to that promise of serving the public, of uh, supporting quality of life and for being a, um, a trusted um, mechanism for 
uh, equitable uh, life <laughs> that um, that people expect from their public services, particularly when there's an emergency and particularly um, when they are in need and vulnerable. Uh, that role that we play is so critical and um, I'm now committed 100% to that um, transformation and reform of governments to be everything people need it to be in the 21st century. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks so much. Uh, so, Vanessa Doak, you've got also a real commitment and yours is to social justice and gender equality. You want organisations to do better for their people. Uh, you've also had a really diverse career, haven't you? Can you tell us a little bit more about you? Sure. Um, yeah, I've been very lucky to have a really uh, varied career. A lot of it um, kind of happened by accident, but possibly you know, subconsciously fueled by um, and kind of internal passion for for justice and for uh, seeing certain opportunities. I think that's what makes digital exciting is that it has the opportunity to be such an equaliser uh, for, for opportunities and to be able to enable people from varied walks of life to achieve their version of success. Um, working in people and culture roles has afforded me to work with some really incredible organisations like Code Life a Girl, like Women's Legal Service, and now working at art processes um, very fortunate to be able to apply uh, some of the things that I've learned about um, what that uh, unequal kind of experience looks like through life, particularly looking through a technology lens, um, some of the things that we can do as a society through early education to kind of ensure that the opportunity that technology does present to be an equaliser um, isn't, isn't missed. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Vanessa. And now we're going to Vanessa R, Vanessa Rorty. You've also got a passion for human-centred design. Uh, now, you're the lead of the digital profession branch for the Australian Public Service Commission. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got where you are now? Yeah, sure. So I've always had a real interest in technology and I started with technology, I guess, and that led me along the path to um, wanting to understand more about humans use technology. I'm proud to say I'm a long-term public servant, so I think I joined the APS back in 2002 and I joined an agency called the National Office for the Information Economy, which is a very early version of uh, the things like the Digital Transformation Agency we know today. And throughout my whole career, I've kind of worked in this whole of government space. So it's really been about how do we bring people together to build digital capability and to uh, deliver better digital services. And this is a mission that I've followed throughout my career that has led me to where I am today, which has been lucky enough to lead up the digital profession program. Let's look at what digital profession looks like in practice. Vanessa Doak, you have been uh, working in a the private sector, but with public institutions. And when we spoke earlier, you described your work as a choose your own adventure. So that sounds really interesting. And you have been working on a really exciting project that many people would be very familiar with. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So um, art processes core to the work that we do is to have a positive impact on people that visit the cultural and tourism organisations we partner with. Um, one of our you know, flagship partnerships is with um, Mona in Hobart. Um, and when we first uh, were looking at what their goals were and what they were wanting to achieve, really key to uh, their work was making sure the visitors were at the centre of the experience. So having no wall labels, which is quite common in most institutions, uh, the aim of having technology 
uh, architecture, art, people, place, all working in harmony to empower the visitor, to encourage their free thoughts, to put them at the centre and to give them a voice and also to make sure that we listen to it. Um, it's having a person-first, visitor-centric and democratising the museum experience goal in mind. Um, and for me and my role leading people and culture art processes, it gives me a really unique um, opportunity to look at how do you apply that in an organisational context? Um, how can I best represent, you know, that purpose and that mission uh, from an employee uh, experience perspective? How do you have that at the heart of the policies that you uh, create, the benefits um, that you design. So that's that's mm. pretty key to, to uh, how I try and take uptake my role at Art Processes. And so when we think about what it looks like when you go into somewhere like Mona, it's, uh, as you said, there's no nothing on the walls, but it's dark. It's an experience where people have the headsets over on, on their ears and you can either, I think you mentioned, you can vote for whether you like something or don't like something or make, you know have it very interactive that uh, you're not just listening to some art curator who's telling you exactly what you need to think about one particular art piece, but it's more engaging and let, letting people uh, impose their own understanding, I suppose. Is that right? Sure, I think that's definitely part of the invitation. So when you uh, attend, you are given a device and that helps you navigate um, the space. It gives you access to a lot of information should you seek that out. So curators certainly play a really important role in institutions, um, but the way the technology works, it gives the visitor the opportunity to engage in those resources, in that information as much or as little as they should choose. And yep, there's some you know really uh, fun features in the app as well, which allow you to engage with how you felt about what you were kind of consuming and looking at while while you were there. And so you mentioned before that uh, in your work with people, you also try to apply that uh, human-centered approach to uh, the way that organisations work. Uh, now there are some organisations that particularly in the US isn't there where uh, that kind of real collaborative management is already taking place. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's an interesting um, organisation in the States called Morningstar Tomatoes. Um, even back, you know, from the 80s, they were trying to change the common approach to how we bring together groups of people to work to achieve a common goal. So uh, as we move from an industrial age, uh, having a lot of policies which dictate how people work, having lines of hierarchy or management which are controlling uh, work and delivery and things like that, um, they decided to uh, take a completely different approach to having a flat management structure and um, they've been particularly successful, it seems, in being able to roll out that type of structure at scale um, in a largely manufacturing context. Uh, but there's been, yeah, since then, a number of organisations and a lot of research that's been developed into flat organisational structures and how they can be set up to achieve the best out of humans coming to work together. That's so interesting. So that might be one model for the future of work. Uh, Pia, you're leading the digital experience for Service Canada and part of your remit is showing that the digital profession is not just about delivering service, isn't it? It's, there's also other things involved like policy and the laws that protect our rights and how it all works together. 
Can you tell us about how governments need to change in the digital era? Thank you. I think it goes back to your question about digital leadership. I think digital leadership is really two fundamental things. First of all, it's about bringing more humane public service in the context, like our entire public service, making it more humane in the context of the digital era. So user-centred approach to everything from policy to services, uh, bringing digital public infrastructure, a truly omni-channel and integrated services approach uh, to the services provided by the public sector, exploring things like what does a um, reimagining of, uh, of the public sector look like in the digital era? So legislation as code, um, digital public infrastructure, um, and a world where humans and machines each do what they do best um, humanely. But then the second part of it is how we actually manage uh, and run our public services um, in the 20, you know, uh, in a more humane way. So looking at servant leadership, shifting away from pure managerialism and towards how to empower and support people right down to the most junior level to bring their whole selves, their creativity, their experience, their networks and themselves uh, to, um, to being true stewards of public good um, and true enablers of uh, public outcomes. It's about being more collaborative, bringing communities into the design and governance of the public service and um, ensuring that we're not just asking for trust from the public, but that we are actually operating in a trustworthy way, uh, which in the 21st century is quite a different thing than it was in the 18th or 19th centuries when a lot of our public institutions and processes were put into place. We need to have a fundamental um, reimagining of our role uh, and how to actually fulfill that role um, in, in the 21st century. So in Canada, um, the, the work is uh, with Service Canada is very exciting. We are looking at not just how to deliver true service excellence with Service Canada, um, but also how to get policy agility. The whole world has really come to understand that COVID was not the end but rather the beginning of an era of rolling emergencies and countries that have been dealing with that profoundly, which by the way, doesn't include Australia and New Zealand, countries that have been really struggling with the enormity of it um, are realizing that if they don't fundamentally shift to become more resilient, responsive and proactive, uh, then they are not actually suitable or, or set up to, uh, to deal with uh, rolling emergencies, whether they're health, financial, environmental, or even social. So um, true transformation of government is now not a nice to have. <laughs> it is a urgent intervention uh, to ensure that our public services can actually um, help ensure quality of life moving forward into these rolling emergencies. So, Pia, uh, you mentioned about collaboration. No single person uh, is able to come up with all the solutions. Uh, so, freedom to innovate has to come has to be built into it, doesn't it? So, how do you encourage that in your teams? So, innovation is a funny thing because it is it has become a word that to, to many has become sadly a little bit meaningless because they've seen it. Um, done as something separate to them. Quite often we put innovation into, you know, a particular job title and then anyone else who wants to innovate is told you can't innovate because that's not your job title. Um, innovation, true innovation, systemic and whole of organisation innovation requires a couple of key things. It requires, first of all, um, a clear vision and purpose um, that helps everyone uh, naturally and systemically walk in the same direction towards a, a common goal, um, regardless of their role, regardless of their expertise. 
It requires culture, a culture of servant leadership, which empowers and enables and gives permission and support to everyone at every level uh, to be amazing, a culture which respects diversity and, um, and inclusiveness and a culture that um, provides a safe and kind and calm culture to work through ambiguity or difference of opinion, uh, to always be um, seeking and engaging with difference in order to get to the best possible um, outcome, to the best possible um, solution. But the final thing which is, which is uh, required, which very rarely you see people actually prioritize is space and time. It is a precondition for someone to innovate that they have the space and time to do so. Quite often um, people are told, well, you've got 100% or 110% um, work to do. Please innovate on the side of that or in your lunch times or after hours. And so a lot of people simply aren't, you know, they're working at 110% of their time and they, they do not have any capacity to try something different, to experiment, to engage, to learn. And, um, and their bosses, if they uh, propose to do it, are told, oh, no, we're too busy for that. We can come back to it another time. The amount of senior executives that I've had talk to me, like my peers, who say, oh, we're just so busy, we can't possibly innovate. It's like if you've got a dollar or $100 million, put 10% into innovation. Put 10% into playtime. When you encourage and support a program um, that says any public servant that wants to can, can have a 10% to explore, experiment, um, innovate, um, the other nine days of that fortnight, they will work extra hard because they're so motivated by that 10th that day where they get to try something new, they get to explore, they get to um, automate or, or experiment. Um, that 10% playtime, as, uh, as Google calls it, uh, of course, we'd never be able to call something playtime in government, um, but um, that 10% experiment time, innovation time, is such an enabler um, to, for, for everyone being able to bring their whole self, their creativity, their um, creativity, their, their curiosity, their, their networks, their experience and expertise into solving real problems that they can see and sometimes uniquely see from their role. And then, of course, once you have time, you still need space. You still need safe places for people to experiment um, that um, can feed into and draw from uh, operations, but obviously not um, get in the way of uh, the, the critical uh, services that people need from government. Uh, so, so those three things are really critical, vision, culture, and space and time. You're listening to the Digital Profession Insight Series. Be digital ready and join the digital profession today. Visit digitalprofession.gov.au for more information. Well, that sounds really interesting. And I personally love the idea of uh, mandated 10% playtime. Vanessa Rorty, you're, now you're, you're leading the digital profession branch. Are you going to be introducing 10% playtime? I actually think that's a great idea and I think it's something we should actually seriously work towards and strive towards. Uh, I also like the idea, though, of thinking about how we can introduce that playtime into everything that we do. And I think some of the methods that we promote through the digital profession, things like human-centred design methods, actually do help us bring that play and that experimentation into just doing our everyday jobs a, a great example and something I love to do when I'm sort of running design workshops and things like that is to hand out uh, coloured textures and pieces of paper and ask people to actually storyboard uh, what they think an experience might be, what they're trying to deliver, what, whatever that thing is that they're trying to design, actually get them to draw it. 
and uh, and that kind of unlocking of uh, a different part of people's brain, that activity of just doing something a little bit different can be really powerful. So it's uh, great to think about how we can um, build playtime into everything that we do. And I do also love actually the um, when we work in more agile and lean methods, there's actually a lot of playtime built into some of those methods as well. And I've been in some very serious government meetings where we're prioritising features on really big products. And we use planning poker cards and things like that, which actually just help us think a little bit differently about what we're doing. I, um, I also think that uh, what we can do when we think about uh, playtime and innovation is think about how we interact with others. And I love what you said before about an era of extreme collaboration. I think uh, I would love to think that we are entering into an era of extreme collaboration. We have amazing tools at our hands. We have uh, these human-centred and system-focused design methods which help us think about things differently and think about how we work together. 15 or 20 years ago, it was actually really hard to talk to people across the country. It was really hard to collaborate on a document. We didn't always have a, a place we could um, sit down together and, and, and talk virtually like we are today. So I think the, um, the conditions are ripe. The, the pandemic times have proven to us that we are better when we work differently together. And uh, I think the number one skill any public servant should have and should be regularly exercising is the ability to collaborate with others. And it, it isn't always easy. I know we always get to these points where we get really excited about working together and then it's like, oh, I'm it's not... It's a bit nerve-wracking, isn't it? Yeah. Having to show you're working to others and say, what do you think? Exactly. Like, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that trust aspect? That's exactly right. You get to that point, it's like, I'm not actually sure if I'm, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to share this? And I think you're right. At, at its heart is trust. And uh, I think that... I love communities of practice because they bring people together who work in different roles and they establish those networks of trust. And it's upon that trust that we can then go forth and collaborate. So I think if I could throw a couple of challenges out there, it'd be to get out there, to network, to join a community, and then to actually start collaborating with the people in your community. Mm, that's so interesting because um, things are changing. It's not like a production line these days, is there? There's no sort of rigid, uh, this is how you do things. It's now very much a, well, ever-moving feast, I suppose. That's right. We don't have the luxury of kind of uh, getting really good at delivering one solution. Uh, to a problem because the problems keep changing on us. Mm. And I think that some of the digital ways of working um, that we're, we're trying to proliferate across government, what they do really well is help us cope with that uncertainty and help us cope with that changing problem space. This isn't about assembly lines anymore. This is about how we can actually still deliver small bits of value constantly while we're still learning as we go, while we're still understanding while, as we go. And uh, that applies to how we learn as well. It's thinking about not about uh, developing one particular skill or that particular skill, but thinking about how we come, become better learners, how we can get access to more flexible learning uh, ways of learning so we can uh, constantly respond to those uh, shifting needs of government. Can I suggest that it, it never used to be a, um, what, we, what, what did you call it, a factory line? Like it, it actually didn't used to be that way. Um, and then in the 80s and 90s, they started to introduce mechanisms that, that slowed things down. We used to have people that, you know, had expertise on social services, write social services legislation and regulation. We used to have multidisciplinary teams where the government was structured around programs. But in the 90s, 
in the 80s, it was restructured and, um, and we introduced the idea that the public service should just operate like a business. So it's not that we are having to undo something that is the way it's always been done. We're actually having to undo a couple of decades worth of misalignment <laughs> that, um, and get back to being a bit more of a holistic, humane public service. So um, I think that some people think that we're going into completely uncharted territory. I would suggest that some of it's getting back to what we used to be and then introducing and layering on top of that the context of the digital um, era. It's such an interesting uh, point of, well, I suppose the industrial age, they are calling it the fourth industrial revolution, and it's also changing the way that uh, we structure our own governance within organisations. So I guess for government, there's always the the issue of accountability. It's always front of mind, and uh, it's much easier if it is a production line that's very rigid and not that flexible uh, approach. But uh, Vanessa Doak, your organisation has actually made a really um, conscious decision to take a different cultural approach when it comes to accountabilities and rules, haven't you? It's a, in, in fact, you've got no rules. So can you explain to us how that works? Not, not quite no rules, but um, just the, the minimum that we feel that we need to have to work together effectively. Um, you know, I think people and culture or what was traditionally known as human resources has a bit of a historical bad reputation of being the, the police officers in the organisation kind of imposing policies and rules, which often felt to me to be driven by by risk and fear. So what if this were to occur? Oh, we better put a policy in place to make sure that doesn't to protect the interests of the organisation. Um, I think what a lot of technology companies brought to changing organisational culture, which really resonated with me, was um, instead of building policies and the way that we operate together around, you know, maybe the 10% of people who might make the wrong decision or might do the wrong thing, what would happen if we wrote the rules around the 90% of people who are going to do the right thing? Um, and that's definitely something that I've tried to apply kind of to be in harmony with art processes, mission and vision that we try to empower individuals through cultural institutions. So uh, things like um, uh, policies, I think it's so integral that, you know, we have this group of incredibly creative and uh, highly intelligent people who outside of work generally are very high functioning individuals who can navigate decisions about life um, without having rules imposed about um, about what they should wear or how they uh, come to interact with other people. So um, we made the approach, particularly with our benefits as well, to be on the you know, generous side, respecting and understanding people's entire life cycle of who you are as a human being at work and what support you might need through different stages and different challenges that you might have, which require you to call on compassionately or bereavemently. And if we were just to rely on the minimum that our, you know, industrial instruments say that we should afford people at work, you're talking about, you know, giving people two days off to get through some of the most challenging and heartbreaking experiences that they might go through. And so instead of using that approach um, uh, of what is the minimum that we need to do to get by or what is the 
how might someone abuse this benefit or rule? And so let's craft a policy around that. Uh, my instinct has been to do the opposite, to overwhelmingly have respect for the people that you have, respect for their high level of intelligence and generally high ethical standards. Um, and I, not, I can't remember where this saying comes from, but you know, generosity breeds generosity. And I think if an organisation responds to you in that way, you're far more likely to respond that way back. And sure, there are anomalies that happen sometimes and you deal with those as and when they arise, but um, overall it creates for a much more enjoyable work experience if I think you're treated with generosity and like and, and a high-functioning um, adult who can navigate um, those basics in kind of life and, and work uh, equally. That's so interesting that you've taken uh, elements of sort of design thinking and uh, human-centred design to the very way that you treat your own employees. So uh, in terms of, um, you know, help for carers, I think when you were talking about it being across the life cycle, not just, you know, for example, the first six months of having a baby, but looking at across the life cycle, it might be that uh, that you might be just having a terrible week. You might be looking after your older parents and your kids and, you know, whatever else might be going on. And what you really need is, I think you mentioned the other day, Vanessa, a meal service or domestic assistance. Yeah. Um, that, how did you come to that? Did you sort of work with the team on, on working out what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. So we do some um, uh, workforce demographic uh, report to understand uh, on a broad number of factors what is the ex experience of um, of each individual holistically um, to understand what other things they're trying to balance outside of work. I think you know from a technology uh, company cultural perspective, you know there were really arbitrary benefits around having beer or drinks or um, table tennis and and fun things or you know, to respond to a lack of women in particular in uh, technical roles or leadership roles, it felt like a competition around who could give the most number of weeks leave. And, you know, when you're at that point of needing time off, that's a really great benefit, but that's not the, the, the end of it. It's how do you support uh, parents returning from work? But also the challenge that my CEO gave me was, well, how do you apply a benefit to be as agnostic as possible and to apply to as many people as possible to support them? Uh, so when you might have a lot of benefits that are tied specifically to, say, your parental leave policy, it might be around having, you know, uh, meal services or access to domestic support. But if you break that down, uh, what if you're, um, you have a family member travelling for work and so there's more responsibility at home on you which makes your work at week that at that particular time really challenging if you have caring responsibilities for an elderly parent um, maybe someone with a disability uh, if you um, have a lifestyle choice of offering foster care if even if it's not permanent respite whatever it might be there are so many instances regardless of if you're a parent or not where having um, access to a meal service might be really helpful for you that week. Um, so while a lot of benefits that we offer could be more traditionally applied to a particular group of people, um, we've tried to break that down and apply it as 
agnostically as possible. I think one great um, story a story that I heard was um, around flexibility and how often, again, if you are going to apply the industrial instruments that we have, flexibility needs to, at the minimum, be afforded to people with caring responsibilities. And I remember um, someone saying they had someone in their organisation that was like, you know, it's great that, you know, this person who's a parent has flexibility to finish to pick up their children from school or what have you um but I'm single and if I'm the one that has to stay back late because only flexibility is applied to people with caring responsibilities I'm not ever going to meet someone and potentially be in that position to be a parent and need caring responsibilities so that person who wants to finish work at a reasonable hour because they need flexibility and work-life balance to meet someone or pursue interests that they might have um, is as equally valid and, and they should be entitled to the same degree of, of flexibility or support um, and work-life balance, just like someone who might need that time for another thing. So, you know, having flexibility, um, you know, agnostic and equalised for anyone to access it in the organisation. Um, right. It's a really great way to look at it. That's terrific. Um, so we're, we're getting towards the end of our Q&A, but uh, look, just... Next month, we're going to be having an uh, episode on uh, leadership at all levels. And uh, while I've got you all here, I'd love it if um, if we could hear, you know, very quick, you know, top of mind, what does a digital leader look like to you? Uh, Vanessa, what's, what's your take? Yeah, so we have some amazing people at all levels of the public service. So I'd be really keen to think about how we can empower some of our specialists to take more of a leadership role. And I also think there's something that's happening around some of the um, things we used to associate with leaders. So the corner office, the power suit, the uh, working late back late in the office. We're starting to chuck these out the window as our uh, we get more flexible and technology enabled. And I think this creates an opportunity for a much wider variety of leaders. So I think uh, digital leaders should look much more diverse than they do right now. <laughs> Fantastic. Pia, uh, what's your quick take? What does a digital leader look like to you? A person who brings uncompromising, humane outcomes in the digital world. Uh, a person who... Um, ensures high trust, um, not just high trust with their staff, but high trust with the citizens and the people and communities that we serve, a person who brings a um, different knowledge systems into their work environment, not just um, uh, from different cultures, but explicitly looks at how their department and their work and their programs and services can connect to country and into uh, Indigenous knowledge systems and uh, communities, and someone who has enough vision to be um, uh, always understanding and um, and striving for a responsive, resilient public service um, in the context of continuous change and, and continuous emergencies, but who is always, again, unrelentingly uh, focused on, the, uh, on being a steward for sustained and ongoing public good, uh, not just for uh, whatever's expedient right now or whatever's cheap or whatever's going to get efficiency or effectiveness, but um, but what's focused on ethical outcomes uh, from our public services. Great, thank you. And Vanessa Doak, what does a digital leader look like to you? They're very strong suggestions, so I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to add much, but I think 
what comes to mind is um, I think themes around um, maintaining curiosity, openness, about adaptability uh, to change, and I think uh, overwhelmingly balancing the intersection between digital and technology with the human aspect as well. Wonderful. Thank you again for listening, and thank you, Vanessa, Vanessa, and Pia. So thanks again. Bye. You've been listening to the Digital Professions Insights Podcast. Find the Digital Insights Podcast on all major podcast services. Stay up to date by following us on LinkedIn or Facebook. And of course, if you haven't done so yet, join the profession today. You'll get access to exclusive learning opportunities, accreditation of your skills, and the chance to connect with peers across government. Visit digitalprofession.gov.au for more information. See you next time.